put me in rooms with extremely interesting people and has made me more confident in speaking to very intimidating individuals um, at a point where I just, it's just not there. That barrier of intimidation mm. just isn't there anymore because you understand that those people also are desperately wanting to be understood in a, in a clearer capacity. And I, to series two of Process Movement. I'm excited to share four new conversations with you that explore people's relationships to their creative practices, as well as how they move and are active in the world. In this season, we go from Western Australia to Mexico by way of the UK and across to Berlin. I got to reconnect with some old friends, learn about processes that really shifted my thinking and hear some wonderful and open stories about each of their journeys. If something sparks you in one of these episodes, please consider sharing it. That would mean a lot. Thank you and enjoy the listening. It was so funny you were saying because, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really keen to kind of go back as far as we can kind of go in terms of our, our history as knowing each other but um so wait you're calling from where are you calling from at the moment i'm calling from oaxaca where i will be for the next week uh, i i came out to mexico to just overlook a job that was happening out here for a company mm. that i'm a creative director for and i decided if i was going to fly halfway across the world i may as well bookend either side of it to take advantage of a, being in Mexico because it's a fantastic country, but B, giving myself time. I'm, I'm working on a book at the moment and it's extremely heavy in its subject matter. And therefore the Berlin winter, which is what I'm usually subjected to, is not the most fruitful place to become introspective <laughs> when uh, dealing with particularly macabre subjects. It really uh, just, it amplifies it to a point of redundancy, basically. Mm, You're just disabled yeah. by it. So the sunshine, which is truly a blessing has has really aided the creative process in, in that regard but yes <laughs> uh long story short i'm in i'm in oaxaca and I'll, I'll be here for another week and i'm deeply enjoying myself uh amazing i've actually never been and my partner she's been a couple of times and has always said like you've got to really want to take you i really want to go with you and just like one of those places where people say you there's so much you'll kind of um, absorb and experience and just love a lot of like the culture and lifestyle and in Mexico so, in general or, or Oaxaca specifically you've um, never been to Mexico. Both, yeah. Both yeah. Mexico in general and to Oaxaca as well. Yeah. It took me so long to come here and, and for no reason other than the fact I just never came here, which is bonkers considering how much I love the food and so much of the culture, but I tended to gravitate towards Asia when I had free time to travel. And I, mm. my father spent a lot of time here during his years of employment and he swore by central and south america he loved it so much and it was always there but I, one of the things i think that struck me is that there's just so much to see that i didn't necessarily have the time 
to give it what it needed. It's not mm. like you can just come for a week. If you're coming for a week, you may as well go to the beach and enjoy that. But I had a month, so therefore it meant I could block it. So I've, I've been over on the water. I've been to the city. I've been here. I can go and like block out to see as much as I can in this period. And, you know, things like Peru and, and Chile and places that like I want to see Patagonia, but I don't want to have a week to see Patagonia. No, exactly. you know, I, I need to be there and, and, and absorb that. So it just hasn't happened yet. And Mexico, I finally went last year with my fiance and we loved it. And then I just said to her, look, I desperately need somewhere to be to, to focus and not be miserable. So we concluded that here made sense. So here I am without her, which I, I, uh, it deeply saddens me truly. Yeah, yeah. Like, she's like, still it's struggling. A funny side of that because you get your, I guess, solo time to create what you're making and to focus on that. But then there's all these experiences when you like to share with someone or people that don't happen. So it's like, I guess, there's a push and pull of of, of what you're intentions are and stuff like that right yeah i mean I, we uh, we've been in a relationship for a decade and i would say for the longest part 50 percent of it existed or still exists on telegram uh, that's where we converse and i basically share everything with her mm. on there in a continual stream so i think i, I recently looked there's something like ten thousand shared images across our chat over the, <laughs> over the decade which isn't bad going and videos and so on so yeah. we live a very strange quite quite aided by digital relationship um yeah but it's often frustrating being in places where you can you can tell so evidently that you're significant other or close friends would deeply enjoy the experience whether shared with you or not it would just be mm. you, you know when the more the more you become close with an individual the the more uh, thorough the understanding of their in, enjoyments become and you can sort of vicariously share that with people but it is frustrating at yeah points totally to, yeah. um that kind of makes me think maybe just a little bit what am I, I'm kind of thinking a bit about context here um, and I might start from my perspective um, and then get you to kind of to, to kick us off in terms of maybe how we know each other and things like that. So, I mean, I feel like it's been about 12 years since we met, maybe 13. Um, yeah, I said 13 to so I think it's around then and when I was invited to come to the UK and we were both on tour with our good friends from um, Your Demise hardcore kind of punk band and we instantly spent probably 12 weeks in a van uh, together um, after not knowing each other from just apart from going this is a band that we our friends with were all in the van together for the next yeah. 12 weeks across Europe. And one thing I, I think back to that time, I, uh, and you were kind of um, like drum teching and, and kind of various other things on that tour. And I know you've kind of gone on many different tours in different capacity through your lifetime, whether it's being a session drummer, being a photographer, being a video maker, um, you know, all these different kind of um, things. And I remember I remember you taking quite a lot of um, photos on that tour and I always like really admired 
from my perspective at, at that current point in time for me being like a photographer and making films that you had this very developed personal style that I really admired and I was like far out like because we we're pretty much the same age and I was like wow like Felix has this this kind of quiet confidence in in what you were already setting out to make and it, and it felt very developed to me and and that's something I took away from from that time which is a very long time ago now um and so I guess yeah from then you and I have kind of sporadically kept in touch and and caught like just followed along with with each other's pursuits and things like that so um I guess for those that are listening and who who will be unfamiliar maybe just give a quick like who you are where you normally reside obviously you're in Mexico at the moment and how you're currently describing what you do and then maybe we can kind of talk about like from that point of time and and things like that yeah absolutely um firstly that tour still to this day is probably one of the most arduous just in terms of time on the road but also bonkers tours i've ever been <laughs> yeah. on it, it just felt like i mean we 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 t- coined the term to ourselves never a dull moment in in regards to i mean we didn't coin that term but it was applied to that band specifically from that tour which seemed every day to provide nonsensical experiences that (laughs) truly you had to be there to 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 understand the depth of and i've tried over the years i've been working on so many different shows based on adaptations of experiences through tour life and so many of the stories i'm drawing inspiration from still to this day come from from that 12 Mm. weeks of chaos and uh the camaraderie that came with it but it was it just every day was something you know that I don't know whether it could have been avoided or whether it was just the case of yeah. how chaos tended to gravitate towards us based on what it is we were doing. The, the um, energy of it was quite a ripe time as well because everyone was also in this very from like the from the band to the friends around the band, including people like us, were also in this very interesting stage of kind of trying to bloom our like creative process. And I think to people like Tom Welsh, to Sam Bailey, to Luke Beard, who now are people who I like radically admire to the extent of how far they've pushed their kind of creative boundaries. And pretty much everyone at that time was kind of on the same level of trying to figure out what they were doing i guess yeah absolutely i mean it was a really beautiful time also because it was it was still it was still so youthful you know it's early 20s and and we were doing things at that time that most people in our age bracket were absolutely not doing Mm. and uh it 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 does as cliche as the term travel broadens the mind is it truly does in an aspect such as that and when you are ultimately piss poor which we were yeah, and and yeah. sort of just living off pds every day yeah. like 10 euros a day max and and just knowing that you're ultimately going to come home with no money perhaps negative money mm. but you're going to be substantially richer in character and, and anecdotal arsenal which 
as I said, still to this day is Arsenal that I can, that I can draw upon for, for newer experiences moving forward. And I think it's helped me become a more pragmatic thinker and certainly a more stoic person in times of chaotic hardship that other people seem alarmed by. And I think because I was just fed that daily for years in my early twenties, it just doesn't affect me anymore for the best. And mm. it, it's helped so much in taking on leadership roles in my later life where, you know, I think leadership ultimately depends on the ability to hold the fort and, and in times of severe hardship, just keep moving forward and and also applying that to to physicality in in taking care of oneself which we'll get to i'm certain in a in a later point in this this uh, conversation but it's all all of those learning points are now uh capable of being applied across a variety of areas of my life and i would never change it for the world despite the fact at that time i think i was really aware of of how existential one can become when faced mm. with with those types of scenarios. But to two points I wanted to make. Firstly, it's interesting to hear you say or speak on the, the admiration for the style that I had created photographically at that time because I wasn't there in a photographic capacity. I was there in a managerial capacity mm. um, somewhat jokingly i think at that point it was impossible to manage a scenario like that and i certainly didn't have the uh the cv to to warrant me being there but i think it was just a case of they were my friends and uh management at the time desperately needed someone and it just made sense to have me there and uh looking back on it having now worked with some incredible tour managers uh, you know I, it was a joke i wouldn't ever ever put myself in that position again or claim that that was what i was doing i really just think i was there as a morale boost and sort of <laughs> not much more but the beauty is it allowed access to to shoot experimental and extremely voyeuristic imagery which is where the foundation of that style that i still to this day output came from is that i guess there is a quiet confidence in it but it's actually on my behalf less so that i never think of it in that respect and i i'm permanently in a state of questioning the validity of my work always um because of the fact that today it's so easy to be overexposed to fantastic work from other people. And I'm permanently looking at other people's work Mm. thinking, Christ, what I'm making is so infantile in comparison. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's, it's bizarre. It's like, to me, the thing that the photography that always speaks to me most in regards to what I refer to as legacy work is, is your Magnum style, you know, everything from Bresson through to, to McCurry or whatever it might be. That to me is legacy work. But then there are these great studio and fashion photographers that are creating imagery that's just so profoundly beautiful in a whole other realm of photographic art that, that I just constantly <laughs> think, what what am I doing? Like I'm not producing yeah. work at the degree of either of these two brackets, both of which I admire, and uh, it, it, it puts you in a very strange uh, sort of position of self criticism that one has to overcome eventually because 
Otherwise you still it's crippling. Need, yeah, you still need to output. But the oddity is I, I never called myself a photographer. I, and I still to this day don't call myself a photographer. And I find the question, what do you do, extremely difficult to answer yeah. because I don't have a straightforward answer. And it's so dependent on the individual that's asking me and yeah. what it is they might latch on to in the plethora of things that I dip my fingers into. So mm. um, I... So that was point number one. Point number two, which actually this leads on to, is that um, I, I currently semi-reside in Berlin, although I'm not really ever there. But um, most of my time is spent on the road or traveling somewhere. And um, I live with my fiance. We're moving to the UK in a couple of months' time. And I guess the most succinct way of suggesting what I do would be creative direction with, <laughs> with several with other, <laughs> yeah, yeah with, with several asterisks and bullet points from that. And yeah, I don't know. Is that to my own detriment? Probably. Um, yeah. I'm certainly starting to think so. As I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, I'm currently writing a book and quite honestly, what I deeply enjoy more than anything is writing. And yet, like with all of those things, I'm, I'm the writer that hasn't written anything or the filmmaker <laughs> that hasn't ever made a film or whatever it might be. But in this yeah. instance, I write all day, every day, but I'm so critical of it specifically because of the people I admire from a literary standpoint being so profoundly good at what they do that I'm like, mm. I'm writing I, I, what I feel like I'm writing is like kindergarten literature in comparison <laughs> to, to these people I admire, but I'm going to continue with this, this book because it means so much. And I think once completed, it will have, or I sincerely hope have great resonance with a large number of people who exist within our area of practice specifically, but, but also just for people in general, my parents specifically who have dealt with, a child, myself, in fact, three children, sadly, all of which have been uh, marred by uh, depressive issues throughout their mm. life. And my mother, I think, more specifically, finds it extremely difficult to understand beyond an explanation, not mm. at an emotional level. Like her emotional understanding of what it is to be a depressive is, is completely chastised by the fact she's never, she's never experienced anything to the extent to which myself or my father or my brothers have. And so this is really just a piece for someone like her, as well as it is a piece for people like myself to say, I, I see you and I, I, and I want you to understand that this is not something in which one experiences solo and in fact is mm. a shared experience across a wide variety of people yeah so it's putting it as a way we can share it precisely through, through this medium that's that's interesting you say that because i was going to ask you this perhaps later on but maybe it's actually just worth kind of bringing it up now because something I, another thing i've always i guess admired or um kind of uh what's the word like paid attention to was was your work and and kind of outlook over the years is as you do have like a beautiful way with words and it shows a lot of vulnerability and care in the way you talk and this is maybe specifically speaking to if you were kind of talking to a topic and you were sharing like a series of thoughts on instagram or, or wherever it may be 
and a lot of things would be talking to say maybe the industry of of making work whether it's through music or or the visual mediums um and that kind of how mental health intertwines and well-being intertwines with that and that you've never been like from what what i see and maybe you can kind of add to it like not afraid to share your darkest thoughts but also to kind of call things out to almost with the intention of bettering the industry or, or the collective peer group around you to be like hey like why no one's like there's like these layers to it and people are going like one or two layers be like there's like 10 20 30 layers down and i'm starting at layer 30 um kind of thing yeah absolutely well yeah the calling out i I started doing that less but i think maybe maybe like four four five years ago I, i got incredibly frustrated by the virtue signaling of the care of mental health, certainly within the industry, whatever mm. that might be, but the industries within which I spend my time naturally caught on to the fact that they needed to show that they cared about mental health, which quite frankly, they didn't beyond the fact that they posted something on Instagram. But when it came to actually dealing with people who are struggling with anything from obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, depression, whatever it might be, these things are so intensely complex and hugely subjective you know one can uh, read a layman explanation on what these ailments are but until you're face to face with an individual who's struggling with them in their own way it's extremely difficult to understand how to deal with that and that this is no fault of anybody who doesn't suffer it's just the entire experience across the board no matter who's involved is hellish and Mm. it's it's a lot of work but i'd rather see people saying nothing than sort of flippantly saying we support mental health and then when they actually deal with someone who has bipolar disorder just write them off because they're an impossible Mm, character to deal with it in the too hard basket precisely which you see all the time and and it's like oh great yeah nike have made a mental health awareness campaign or whatever it's like Mm. it means nothing and you're like what's the reality of this like what is the work culture what is the right you know you know are people being listening listened to you know is there space to to for help and on all these things right which, the, which ultimately the answer is no. There mm. is like that the, we have. We're trying to sort of commodify mental, the mental health crisis mm. into creating apps that, quite frankly, don't work because one of the largest contributors to the mental health crisis is being on a telephone too <laughs> yeah, much. Exactly. So, it's such a paradox. And, and, and also, really, the best therapy works in a physical capacity. One mm. needs that physical connection. Put the phone away. Don't even bring it to the session. And mm. Stare your therapist in the eyes and speak openly and transparently. Mm. And I recently spoke with a therapist who he, I, I sort of I go through phases of experimenting with different practices of therapy because I think it's also vital to gain mm. a broader understanding of, of of that practice and how specific ailments can be exercised. And this particular therapist practices gestalt therapy specifically. And um, he, in our first session, asked me if I was comfortable, and this is going on to the second point you made about being openly transparent about suffering he asked me how i felt about the 
speaking on the subjects of suicide specifically. Mm. And I, I've spoken about this countless times online. In fact, I was shadow banned by Instagram for speaking about suicide. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I think it's just purely because the way around it is that you have to sort of spell it in some absurd way, <laughs> put a yeah, one for I've the I or a three that, for yeah. the, yeah. And, and I didn't do that. I just thought I'm not, I'm not going to hinder the, 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 you know, the depth of what I'm trying to write by miss don't, you know, deliberately misspelling words mm, to get around mm. an algorithm. It's so stupid. And, and, and also it was, it was flagged on the basis that they believed that I was inciting the glorification of such, which quite clearly I wasn't, because if you read the piece, it was the antithesis of that. But mm. um, I, I told him, no, absolutely not. I'm not remotely bothered by discussing suicide because I think if anything, it's the one subject that should be discussed extremely frankly because mm. it's it's such a taboo subject and needn't be. It's not mm. not within the progressive world that we currently live. Suicide should sit at the front and center as the mm. conversation to have because it affects men specifically in an alarming 100%. capacity. And there are yeah. so many things that can be done to counteract that. But also certain people just simply don't want to live anymore. And that should be within their right to deal with as they so please. But mm. we don't have the things in place to deal with those individuals who are struggling. And I've been there and I've dealt mm. with suicidal ideation or I'm writing in this book a whole chapter on what's referred to as passive suicidal ideation, which is almost a daily uh, um, onset of, of suicidal ideation, not that you w would act upon, but it's used ult ultimately as a safety net. It's mm. like, it's the empirical emergency exit when mm. all other things that you draw upon as safe have failed you, you can always romanticize on the fact that there's that one button you can press yeah. and all of this goes away and it just lodges itself in your brain. Like an override kind Precisely. of thing too, or um, like an eject button. Yeah, that's so interesting to almost as like a, I don't know if this is saying it right, but like a North Star that is like... I guess it's a macabre it's, North Star at the very yeah, least. I mean, it is. It's like, yeah, it it's doesn't a, sound right, but it's like, no. I guess there's this, yeah, because you still have like a will to carry on, but you're like, you've created options for yourself because of the direness that you might be going through. Um, Precisely. It's, it, it is the paradox of, of not wanting to live, but not wanting to die and, and mm. being stuck in that center point, sort of towing the line of, of chaos and, and neutrality mm. and it's extremely difficult to navigate and therefore trying to output it in any way shape or form that feels constructive as opposed to going the path of utilizing intoxication normally as as mm. a crutch that mm. that, that for me is is a major avoidance and obviously i grew up in the hardcore scene i'm still straight edge to this day and and uh i'm still vegan and i have been for like half of my life and i do think that that probably is responsible for me still being alive because mm. had i not have done that i absolutely would have drunk myself to death or yeah, got carried there's also, away there's like the physicality of that but there's also like just the mental clarity or the mental uh Validity, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That maybe that that kind of culture brings, but also just the 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 mental kind of 
um, the physiological side of that can can also be like beneficial as well. I, I see um, a lot of that now. You know what? I, a human being that I adore and I desperately want to spend some time with is is David Goggins, and I see a lot. He was of, here in Melbourne, actually. I think. Yeah, he's I mean, he's just he's a remarkable human. I mean, say what you will about it, but I. I I deeply admire an individual with his rigor and uh, just zero tolerant for bu- tolerance for bullshit. It's just, yeah. it's just, it is what it is. You, you, you get what you see and nothing more, but also yeah. it's, it's pure rigidity. And it's just that looking at the fact that once you've exhausted every single excuse that you have to not do something, yeah. you're still there at the end of the day, the dust has settled. So what are you going to do? There's nothing mm. left. And and I think being in the entertainment industry for a decade plus and being straight edge whilst being offered every drug under the sun almost on a daily basis and dealing with people that essentially can't function without taking intoxicating drugs or whatever it might be is a very weird place to be. Like I've been sober that entire time. So my mm. brain has absorbed scenarios that almost everyone else subject to that scenario has no recollection of but i yeah, the observation is like kind of weird like two-way mirror-esque of mm. what's going on and can probably put you into some funny thought patterns because you're almost hyper clearly watching a decisions play out that you've actively decided not to do but you're still very very much there absolutely um, it makes you incredibly good at uh, uh, fine-tuning intuition and, uh, you know, really understanding the characters that you are surrounded by and what it is they're doing. And, you know, the human brain has the capacity to, uh, to, to regulate and notice patterns across its exposure to things. And therefore, in a sober state of mind, patterns become very apparent very quickly. And Mm. certainly behavioral patterns become extremely noticeable, almost to the point at which one doesn't even need to hear what's going to be said and can likely predict that that's the outcome. Uh, So, you know, and that's a, that's a dangerous place to be in many instances. And it's been extremely helpful in a lot of jobs I've done. But it, it's a test of the ego of the individual who's either employing you or is involved in the project because you become extremely sure of a scenario. And I wouldn't ever do this unless I was a hundred percent and you're never, you know, it's never guaranteed, but mm. you get very good at predicting and also just seeing characters immediately. And so there've been many scenarios in which I'm like, this person is going to be a problem for this project and telling <laughs> yeah. whoever is in, involved like you should you should remove this individual from this project because they're ultimately going to be the death of it and it just doesn't happen so then i leave the project and the thing just falls to its knees and they come back with their tail between their legs being like okay that person's gone could you help now no um but you know thankfully again happens less so now because i'm extremely picky with the projects that i work on Mm. and i think much like yourself we've just spent years moving through this space and taking anything we could to establish ourselves as individuals that we're now in a position to be able to say no to things and Mm. and really hone 
the, the aesthetic and the output of what we're doing and the people that we're involved in, because mm. quite frankly, a lot of the things I've done in the past, I absolutely wouldn't do today. And I certainly totally. wouldn't associate myself with a lot of the people that I did previously based on who I've become, but I wouldn't have become this person had Without I not. That. Yeah, I precisely. So, I'm the same. So, it's like you take all those experiences and kind of all parts out of it and, and take some of it and leave some of it and kind of sculpt and refine over many, many years. And that journey that you take, which is constant kind of refining, pulling away, taking from, leaving things and, it's the journey that is like that development and it kind of brings me to thinking just that for even just for myself to know um because i kind of i mean uh, if me and you met you know, 13 years ago you already had uh you know a series of, of experiences and, and decisions and and surroundings to kind of put you into those into where you got to so i'm kind of interested to know like what was your um like how did you get to where you are today essentially and like did you always intend or plan to do what you do um and you know what was that kind of succession or or gravitating towards the outputs of you know writing and photography and music and so on and so forth i all I wanted to do when I was 15 years old was be Travis Barker. And I just wanted to play drums all day, every day. And I can tell you right now that it was the last time that I ever felt that level of passion for a specific pursuit was trying to become the best drummer that I possibly could. And I... I spent so much time obsessing over it that I ultimately ended up in a position that I was around Travis Barker because of a string of quite serendipitous events. And that didn't do anything other than sort of double down the fact that this is actually a, an achievable lifestyle and people are gravitating towards my skill as a musician and asking me to contribute that skill to their projects. And so I pursued that in full, even when we met, ultimately that's that was my pursuit still at that time it just wasn't doing much at, at that particular period mm. but um i i think i had just left a project at that but yeah i had i just left like a dubstep live dubstep project that i was doing it was me that's and a right. dj showing us like some stems and mate was it wasn't like was Am I wrong in saying like there was something to do with like Skrillex and that yeah, kind of world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. UK dubstep. So weird. I was thinking about this like, like before Skrillex was the Skrillex that. So obviously he was Sunny in from first to last, which us moshes yeah. know. But then, um, yeah. <laughs> but then he sort of went through this change period and started making various electronic music, and I was working with Ollie from BMTH at that time at, at Drop Dead, his clothing line. And um, I was in this dubstep band and, yeah, sort of in conversation with Skrillex about doing a live show with him, uh, thanks to Jonah, actually, from from BMTH at that point. He put me in contact with, with Sonny and, 
yeah, we, we were umming and ahhing over how to execute it based on availability. Sadly, it never came to light. But weirdly, I was thinking about those, those emails just recently because I think he himself is, is going through a new evolutionary phase of, of himself as an artist. And I thought about reaching out to him mm. again and just talking about maybe trying to make some music. But anyway, I did that. And then I went on to play more and more and I started transitioning into session playing and musical direction because it was more lucrative. Um, and at that point I was tired of being poor, but, um, it also came with the price of, uh, erasing any fun from the scenario and it just becoming a a nine to five ultimately, except it wasn't nine to five. It was 24 hours a day. Mm. And, um, I, I stopped doing it on like on the dot. I was, I, we did, I did the Stephen Colbert show in New York. And ever since I was a 10 year old, I'd wanted to play late night American TV. I just felt like it was such a bastion of made it. Uh, and you know, I grew up not an American and I'm sure you too were just heavily influenced by Americana. And that was a huge part of it. Like late night TV was just such a platform of thinking, wow, like imagine what it's like to be on a a late night talk show in the U S and then there I was, and you film this throughout the day. And then you have this bizarre sort of meta existential experience of sitting in your hotel and watching the show back as it goes live and i sat there and watched myself play and just really came to understand how miserable i was i felt nothing and uh, after all these years of having dreamt of that being a reality there it was playing out in front of me and i was numb and i just thought and that's that then i'm just, I'm just not doing this anymore yeah. uh, so. i'd rather be poor and doing something else than having this kind of 24 hour so-called nine to five right and and so and so i just yeah the the project came to a close well my involvement in that project came to a close and i instead it took a year out to just think and and actually go back and visit a lot of the places i'd been on tour and this is the part that a lot of people don't understand about tour it's sort of romanticized from the individual who doesn't go on it but yes tour tour is not like oh i've been to all these wonderful places it's like when you've been to a couple of shitty venues and maybe a hotel but you didn't really get to see much else and in fact van touring is the best like van touring is the best because you actually get to see stuff but when you're on a bus tour or on a flying tour, you see nothing. You see airports, hotels, and concrete underground car parks, and that's it. So I went yeah. back to the cities I'd been to that I thought I should have done this justice when I was here. And so I spent a year doing that. I took what money I'd made and I reinvested it in taking a little Fuji X100S, I think. Hartley yeah. told me to get one. I when I oh, hung out yes. with him in New York, Hartley. he was like, Hartley was like, this camera's amazing. And when we're talking like a decade ago now, he's like, this camera's amazing. Just get one. I bought one for like four hundred dollars off someone in New York, and then I just traveled around. I went to Southeast Asia and went to all these places with nothing, just a just a little backpack, like a small backpack with some t-shirts and that camera, and like nothing else for a year. I just mooched around doing that, trying to tell other people's stories and 
at really focus on on the human experience and and the human condition ultimately and what it is that drives individuals to to utilize all of these skill sets as a means of telling their own story and um and that i think just solidified itself as this is probably what i should be doing with my mm. time is is trying to amplify voices of individuals that are doing incredible things that would otherwise go ignored or they're they're, they're not seen in a an excessively large capacity, but in fact, are the most interesting things that are happening. So mm, that's mm. really been the pursuit since then. And, um, and at the same time, regretting my decision not to pursue academia and therefore using what spare time I have to, to sort of autodidactically teach myself psychology and, and sociology, which has been fantastic because it's a great tool to have learned moving forward in my job, it makes it so much easier to navigate a, a variety of characters um, from from a, a very sort of uh, strong standpoint. You can deal with with a great number of characters that, that otherwise might terrify certain individuals. Mm. But knowing what it is that's happening in that capacity has been so useful to just tell great stories of great people who are just perhaps not going to ever see that potential happen based on the type of individual they are. They're, mm. they're, they're usually struggling to have their voices heard because of the way they think or the way that they behave or whatever it might be. But everybody is thinking or behaving in a certain capacity because of a number of factors that need to be addressed. And mm. therefore that that's my interest is like bend, blending blending the, 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 the empiricism of psychology with the sort of metaphysical philosophy that we have come to understand in the age that we are now and just telling great stories through, through that process. It's almost like you were saying earlier about um, kind of those early days of being on tour and being that hyper kind of observational of like scenarios and people, but that's in a probably more observational sense, but now you're taking that and, acting on it and with like more learning and whether it's like visual storytelling or just talking with people or writing about it and having information to write about. You know where it really helps it, it, the, the space in which it helps the most is sitting down with incredibly high functioning people who are otherwise misunderstood by everyone around them and translating the chaos that comes out of their head into viable and actionable, uh, whatever it might be experiences or pieces of art or what, you know, it's, it's, mm. it's essentially acting as a translator between the entropy of a, of a genius mind of, of the variety of people who I've worked with and the very binary thinking of management or, uh, yeah. you know, agents or whoever it might it be. Like they, when art and commerce combine and they kind of don't combine. So you have to be that translator precisely in, in the kind of role where you're like, I understand both of these things, but I'm not going to get, let the commerce like poison the art essential yeah you're, because you're, we live you're, in capitalism right and and you're, you're you're bridge building that at every single point you're just looking at a way in which 
both parties are taken care of because the obviously the common goal here is for the thing to succeed mm. and whether that's for it to succeed on the basis of needing monetary gain or whether it's for the sake of the creative individual just simply wanting their ideas to thrive it doesn't matter but like the end goal is that this thing needs to succeed but what needs to happen is there needs to be this sort of two-way filtration system in which you're taking that binary approach of sort of managerial number crunching and then you're taking the complete chaos of a creative mind that cares not at all about binary managerial processing and thinking where what 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 is the intersection here what is the apex that creates an ability to allow this thing to thrive and and i think that sober state of mind through a decade plus of touring with a great number of, uh, you know, interesting characters has just allowed that language, which is ultimately an unspoken language. It's, a, it's an intuitive, uh, physically experienced language to, to become the forefront language. I speak beyond obviously the, the mm. audible language and, mm. um, and it's great. It's a great, it's, it's a great, skill set to have because it's given me it's put me in rooms with extremely interesting people and has made me more confident in speaking to very intimidating individuals um at a point where i just it's just not there that barrier of intimidation mm. just isn't there anymore because you understand that those people also are desperately wanting to be understood in a, in a clearer capacity. And I obviously travel a lot. So I end up sitting with very interesting people in, on flights and um, yeah. obviously more so when you're flying business, which thankfully is now a more of a luxury I'm allowed, but uh, you tend to sit next to extremely interesting people. And yeah. I've met an array of truly fascinating characters all of whom i've stayed in touch with because they've drawn upon me oftentimes in an unofficial capacity for separate opinion on specific things that are happening within their life which is a very strange thing to do quite honestly because mm, you can watch it play out not super intentional on your part but it's part of the world that you've come to know and understand based on the just decisions and your way of thinking, I guess. Absolutely. I, I really that, and also approaching individuals who are extremely high profile in a capacity that makes them feel human is, mm. is, is, you know, we, we've always used this term punisher, uh, or, you know, or sweater and it's like, <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I just like, I, I've never been that person, thank God. And mm. now really going. And it's so evident when you can see that. Oh, it's so painful yeah. and it's so it, worse yet is when there are sweaters in the crew of an individual mm. that, that just don't need to be there. Like it's so bad or watching people lose composure when another famous person enters the room. And it's, like, it's and it just, so it really disrupts bleak. a lot of, yeah, just the feeling of a place, I guess. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, yeah, I'm interested like just on that, I guess just your process a bit because you're obviously being kind of asked to do a, a, an array of different things like you know whether you're on tour with someone like Anderson Park or doing session things or like creative directing so what does it look like for you when 
things are kind of like given to you or, um, Hey, we want you to do X. Like what is, what does that process look like you from the initiation of a conversation to physically, um, this is how I'm taking this on, you know, what is, yeah. What does that look like on your side? Almost every job that's worth celebrating that I've done has come on the basis of a cold call. It was never on a basis of an invitation. It was on, and this is advice that I give to every person that hits me up, which happens often, maybe daily from random people. What, what advice would you give me for this or this or this? The singular piece of advice I would give is utilize your observational skills to see the weak points in the things you admire and then pitch where you can optimize those weak points based on your skill set and mm. so it's like I, creative problem solving essentially precisely and like you have to know yourself to be good at this and i think yeah. that too is a major part of the advice is like take some time to step away from the output to really explore what it is that you are good at and mm. then use that as the tool that it is which is an extremely powerful tool when brandished brandished correctly and i i went after different things whether it was you know i mean there are so many things i've done that just i haven't put my name to but they just exist in the world and they obviously there are the entertainers but there's a very famous um donut store or, or like oh, a yes. company in in, in, in london this. and um they Everybody loves them. And at that time, especially, they were, had a very cult following and they didn't have a vegan donut. And I was walking home from dinner one night and I walked past one of their stores and I just thought, tomorrow morning, I'm going to call them up and I'm going to offer to come in and develop them a vegan donut. And I'm not going to stop until there's one in production. And that's that. That's what I'm going to spend my time doing. And I did exactly that. I called them the following day and I bullshit my way through it. The guy asked me what my credentials were. I had none. I was just like, I mean, other than the fact that I know that this will be incredibly successful if done correctly, I have nothing to offer you other than my time and my interest in seeing this through as a 360 project. So it's not just me suggesting it. Obviously, they thought about doing this. They just hadn't been able to create something that matched the level of quality of their non-vegan products. So the, that, that evening, I went to their factory and I, I spent some time with their head chef, Sasha, who is a genius, young, well, as a young boy grew up in germany and and worked in in bakeries there and and is now what's considered a master baker by german standards and he was appalled by the idea of making anything without butter and <laughs> uh and eggs and so on and so forth and he'd never heard of a chia seed and he'd never heard of, of aquafaba and all of these things that you can utilize that have the same protein consistency as egg white but aren't eggs and so we sat for an evening and i showed him how to recreate uh the the protein consistency of egg white by using other natural ingredients and then he, he invited me back every day for a week and we basically just nerded out in their kitchen. Um, and by the end of the week, we had proof of concept. The two owners loved it. They put it out. 
very tentatively on the basis of we'll do one flavor every <laughs> every weekend so a friday and a saturday and a sunday we'll do one flavor and just see how it sells so the first friday sold out in half an hour across every single shop wow. in the city saturday same thing sunday same thing kept going and then six months later they'd open a vegan only store in marlebone and it had won multiple awards and so on and i like i walked away from that with like a grand, I think, and nothing wow. else. So, but, but I don't care because it exists in the basis of the fact it makes so many people happy. Like mm. every day I see people celebrating the fact that this thing exists and it's so good to know that it's there. And I, it's, I don't want anything from it other than the fact that humans can feel a sense of betterment through its existence. That's all mm. it is. That's what matters the most. And whether it, brings it is joy. like a purely creative artistic output or something that has more, maybe not the right word, practical, but like, yeah, just like food is, is another form of that and, and all these different things. And it's like, yeah, that hyper observation, I guess, makes you think wow look i can see more gaps here and this gap here and, and so on and so forth um, yeah, and, and, and that happened i mean so another example is childish gambino who i have admired since he was putting music out on tumblr and mm. i'd always thought originally i'd wanted to drum for him but i'm not american it's extremely difficult or it was at that point to to you know, to gauge the idea of having a visa and going out there and actually pursuing a musical career. It just was not something with, within my reach. And so mm. I sat on that for so long, for years and years and years thinking, how can I, how can I approach this in a way that I could pitch myself as someone he would want to work with? Mm. And it took over a decade. And then I remember reading an article, I think it was in GQ and it was like a huge article, probably like a 10 pager. That was a day of day in the life of him and his team. And he'd always had an extremely reserved public output, you know, sort of impenetrable fortress of people mm. around him that was very ambiguous. But I, took what little information was in there and pieced it together as a means of access to his management. And I basically just cold called his manager with a deck that I put together of things wow. that I felt I could bring to the project that didn't currently exist. And I thought nothing of it. I sent it expecting nothing in return, got nothing in return, chased it a week later. He was hugely apologetic and said, he hadn't looked at it, but now has and thinks it's amazing. Can I come for a meeting? I was like, well, I'm not in LA, but I will be in a month's yeah. time for, for South by. I'm going through there before going to South by. If you can do it in a month, let's, let's jump on. So his, uh, his assistant logged like a 15 minute meeting in LA and this <laughs> thing went on, for, really? it went on for two and a half hours oh, of wow. he and I just like riffing on so many subjects and, I've had so many meetings in LA that ultimately come to nothing. Like people blow smoke up your ass. You leave thinking oh, totally. this is it. And then you hear nothing more. So I obviously approached it tentatively, but I thought I t it was the last meeting I had before going to the airport to fly home. And, and I thought there's no way this is going to amount to anything, but at the very least, at least, you know, I showed up and I tried. And, I tried, yeah. and when I landed and got off the plane, I had an email with, tickets booked to go out there to start working on um 
the This Is America tour and, uh, you know, start looking through ideas of how we could start, you know, build this thing out as an experience. And that's where, that's where me calling myself a creative director came from because we walked, this was in London, actually, Donald was there for a show and we walked into uh, a meeting, uh, his manager and I, and he was like, what do you want to introduce? What do you want me to introduce you as? Like, what, what do you feel you should be yeah. in, in this capacity. I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know because I'm doing several things. He's like, all right, you're a creative director or consultant, whatever. We'll just call you that. And I was like, okay, cool. guess that's what I am. Yeah. And, uh, and then we sat down at a table and it was me, his manager, Donald, the show director and the, uh, creative company who were building out the, the show experience. And we sat and scribbled on napkins and menus in this hotel with stage designs and collaborative ideas for artists that would work on specific show look, uh, song looks. And we were there for, for a good few hours, just riffing in this little restaurant at the hotel. And it was that moment where I was like, Oh, this is actually happening. Like I need to take mm. stock of the fact that this is actually happening. Yeah. This is not just an email. <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is, well, it's not just the original email. And in fact, the things I included in that deck are now manifesting into reality mm. because of the fact that I bothered to just go ahead and send it. Like the worst thing that's going to happen is no one's going to respond to you. The best thing that's yeah. going to happen is that you're sitting there and it's actually happening. And I've so I've always taken that approach myself. It's like, you've got nothing to lose in the sense of like, yeah, someone will either not respond or say no, but that or it goes the other way and they say yes. And that's when you kind of grab hold of something and go, okay, because they've said yes, now I can, I'm going to pour my energy into this Mm -hmm. because like you're, I guess you, I guess as an artist or something, you are kind of always hoping for someone to take notice of your thinking and your approach to something. And when you are given that opportunity, you're like, okay, and then when it's particularly when it's like collaborative, you're like everything is like just this melting pot of whatever it may be to, to bring something to life. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was riffing on this the other day. I was on a flight and um, I, I found it so interesting. I wrote down this, this sentence, which is the psychology of the in-flight curtain. And I want to, I sort of want to reference that in this instance, because the psychology of the in-flight curtain is the fact that there's no actual written rule that going through that curtain is a, is a no, no. It's just that they draw that curtain as a sort of division of class. Mm. And it's like, Oh, this section's not for you. And people obey the curtain. They're terrified of the curtain and the curtain ultimately is the metaphor of life in general. It's the fact that you've come to conclude that this specific thing is not for you because you haven't understood that there isn't a curtain at all. It's really just, it's, it's, it's just this sort of socially constructed idea of the fact that you haven't reached the point of invitation or you can't afford to be here. It's nonsense. Just go through the curtain. There's nothing there. Easily open. It's not like a brick wall, right? Yeah. It's, it's, there's no curtain. The curtain is just this thing. It's just, you just move it out of the way and then just, (laughs) and then then suddenly you're in this other space. And then of course you might get questioned why you're in that space. So you better have an answer. Mm, But mm. if you've got, the capacity to go through the cut you've probably got the capacity to come up with an answer even if you're bullshitting in that moment (laughs) but the point is you you know move through 
the in-flight curtain because it's 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 not there for any other reason than to try and chastise you yeah and it's like a filter in a weird way yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly and so but you, not you know, chosen by you chosen by someone else who doesn't really get it um, yeah exactly it's it's it, i you know i just don't see it the curtain's not there and mm. it it, t- it took me a long time to to pluck up that courage but eventually you start to understand that mm. re- really the majority of chastity that exists in your life is is, is within your control it's mm. it, it, it's 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 made to look as though it's out of your control and that you are subject to it but really mm. and you have to kind of fall into just whatever happens around you rather than any kind of autonomy or agency over yeah precisely things. And, 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 and that's exactly it. It's taking, taking total control of your autonomy. And, mm. and, and that comes from really being self-analytical and understanding your strengths and maybe just cleaning the slate of what, or trimming the fat of what doesn't actually work and is not mm. going to contribute any real, uh, benefit to you mm. or the people you're approaching and just streamline yourself as an individual so that you are the best version of the person that people want you to be and you want to see in yourself and mm. uh, uh, yeah. yeah that actually makes me then i kind of want to bring ourselves to um the thread in between all of this um which is the, the kind of modality of of movement and, and physicality um and particularly more around the the, the mental well-being of that because i know that's probably uh, from my observation, your yeah, I mean, I guess just kind of unpacking your relationship to movement, particularly as a thread through the lifestyle that you lead in terms of one, obviously the travel, but two, the the, the high creative output. And I know you spend, you know, with, particularly when you're with musicians and artists, they are quite high energy people and stage shows and then you have this kind of personal work that you're always making so there's a lot of kind of exertion of of energy and so where does movement sit within that and what is your kind of current relationship to movement um so so movement or physicality yeah has always been extremely prevalent in my life i grew up in the sticks and uh, I mean, really in the sticks to the point at which seeing friends was a luxury, but I had two brothers and my parents just let us reign free. We just, you know, there were, there were no reins in that regard. It was that here's a bike, here's whatever, go out and just explore everything around you and utilize what you have to create something from that whether that be entertainment or purpose or whatever it might be and so you know we grew up riding bikes like maniacs when we were kids and i I used to compete as a downhill junior downhill uh mountain biker you you know sub 10 like probably eight nine ten years old and and i loved it uh we were extremely poor i had a rigid bike which for anyone that doesn't know is a bike without suspension and riding Mm. downhill with a rigid bike is maniacal but uh i didn't care i just wanted to my parents got the bike from the dump because it was the only thing they could afford it Uh, but i just like every kid who's ever been in that scenario it's the same story over and over and over again it's that it doesn't matter because the instrument that you have is the instrument you will thrash to the point at which totally. it, 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 you you become the master of that thing. And yeah. so, you know, I, I was surrounded by kids that had like 
all singing, all dancing bikes of that time. And they were just failing. And mm. I was just balls out, didn't care. It's like this bike has, I have nothing to lose. It doesn't matter if the bike breaks, it breaks, but really I need to get to the bottom of this hill and I need to be better than everybody else. And so mm. it started there. And then as I grew and, 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 and actually started to become more aware of the, the mental health issues that I had, much like everybody else, again, a similar story is that the physical practice of something really helped tame the wolf. And also being sober, you become so consciously aware of what's happening in your body and your brain. And so I needed to sustain a level of what I considered optimal physical health. And so you know, implementing protocols in my life, which thankfully has become so much easier because we have great people like Andrew Huberman giving fantastic, you know, full on lectures for free mm, yeah. online or, 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 you know, great people like Nick bear. I don't know if you know who Nick bear is, but he's, uh, he is a fascinating, uh, ex-military U S young guy started a nutrition company and it's extremely popular, but he's someone I greatly admire. Um, he, he's coined a term, the hybrid athlete in which he's absolutely yoked, but also does, you know, triathlons and, and, uh, ultra marathons, which mm. by any standard should be impossible considering his size, but he's created programs to allow you to operate at a high cardio capacity whilst retaining extreme muscle density. Mm. Um, and I look at that as, as a great example. And then the Wim Hofs of the world and so on. And it's, it's like, again, that hyper observational approach of drawing from every single one of those individuals and then building a protocol or program that works for myself. And mm. I think, the cold exposure is especially good in that respect. And in the winter, I, I love training in the winter. I love yeah. running in the winter. I run with nothing, just a pair of shorts, no top, no anything. And it's like sub zero at 6am, <laughs> but you just run and you really understand the, your capacity to survive an unpleasant scenario yeah. when you are running in sub-zero temperatures and it's pitch black. And I don't run with a torch or anything. I, I, I try and use what I have naturally been given as a, as a, as a sensory mm. understanding of my space. I tend to run in places I'm familiar with, so I know what's coming. But yeah, yeah. running down country lanes in pitch black in minus six with no clothes on is, uh, <laughs> is a really, absurd, but also it, understandably has that you're entering like a point of discomfort where you're, everything is heightened, I guess. Yeah. You, you ultimately just realize you come back from, from a run and then, you know, I, they're short runs, they're five, five or six K and, and they're not being ran at a competitive no, level no. there big that it's yeah. you know I'm, I'm probably knocking out sort of four probably yeah four four minute kilometer i don't know what that is like seven minute mile something like that yeah. it's a it's a it's a steady pacing but it just you come back and you feel behemoth in size it's remarkable mm. it's just like nothing can touch you when you come back in and also your ability at a scientific level to regulate body temperature because the utilization of 
adapting white fat into brown fat, for example, mm. you, you're, you're th- from a thermo standpoint, you become extremely finely tuned. So it's, the winter becomes a lot less miserable when your body is yeah. capable of dealing with excessive cold. But I love it. And then in the summer, it's again, just like training in the extremities of heat. Um, but those two things I find vital, but then implementing that when I'm on the road, like right now, I don't have a gym, but what I do have is like a couple of resistance bands and a basic understanding of calisthenics to Mm. the point at which I can create a fantastic circuit, a full body circuit that will maintain my, my muscle capacity at an adequate level for a long time without, you know, racking up some ludicrous bill because you're playing day rates at a gym, which is like a tenner a time. It's, yeah, like, it's well, ridiculous. You can drop 50 quid on, and buy all the equi- equipment you need to have a gym that you can take with you everywhere. And I smashed out a circuit this morning, which, you know, hit every single muscle conceivable to, to, to that, you know, that one would need to mm-hmm. in a great capacity to the point at which I I'm feeling it now, which is always what you want. And that too is, it, you know, is a major factor in moving. And, and I, am I consistent with it? Oftentimes not. Touring especially is extremely difficult because of the hours that you keep and it's suboptimal rest times. Mm. Uh, and also depending on who you're working with, the, the, the need to be spontaneous in availability naturally destroys any ability to block sort of yeah. uh, systematic um processing of when you're going to do things but i guess when your I was, body can kind of adapt to that spontaneity in, in a sense right if it, i mean your body's pretty pretty smart thing it's a remarkably smart thing yeah. i think the biggest thing that it's i struggle with when touring is is the bizarre eating patterns where mm. you might eat at 10 or 11 p.m or whatever it might be and 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 i definitely overeat i am a rider spider that is that is exactly (laughs) what i am and it's just like if you i was just on set the other day and the catering was fantastic to the point at which they just like every five minutes they kept coming with things and i just what am i going to say no i can't do that you keep bringing these delicious things jobs in spain and they'd have like a massive break like in production where you're like i'm like we've got to get we've got to get these shots like we're we're on time and they're having like siestas and like two hour long lunches and and you're just like, well, okay, I'm just going to eat all this. This is just so good, especially when and you're I'm, on the road. Yeah, and I'm sitting in front of a monitor, and like, in, it, it, so there's the monitor, and then in front of that are just like plates of everything from beautiful tropical fruits through to whatever biscuit thankfully uh, the biscuits are off limits and the chocolates are off limits because they're not vegan and i'm still extremely strict in that respect yeah, but like yeah. there is st- the mexicans eat this thing and i don't know what it's called but it's basically just like ready salted crisps with a bunch of hot sauce and like other sort of fluff on there and and it's just so moorish <laughs> that, that you're just like knocking back like a multi bag of crisps without <laughs> thinking about it <laughs> so, yeah. you know there's there's a lot of that but and t- touring especially will take its toll on you because you know I, I, there's a band who i i've toured with oh last year i toured with a couple of times called coin a fantastic band from the u.s and they're all deep foodies and so 
we would just go out every day in every city and search lunch and dinner, the best places that we could eat. So you just eat like a glutton for, <laughs> for weeks on end. And uh, Ryan, the drummer and I who take uh, our, you know, physical activity extremely seriously, both with post tour would converse with one another on what we were doing to sort of mm. realign ourselves with practice and just send each other videos like out with runs and just uh, whatever it might be. So he's a, he's a keen cyclist also. So just like sharing data on progression, I think is also really important. And you're a person that I've followed on Strava for many, many years and always admired the attention that you pay to your your progress tracking and just what it is that you're doing as, as a athlete that I've always admired. I've always looked at that as a great point of reference. I'm like, all right, well, Ben runs <laughs> at this time. Like I've, I've analyzed running a lot and I'm like, okay, well, Ben, Ben's like, Ben is an avid runner. I, I would say I run, but I wouldn't call myself a runner in the capacity that you are actually a runner. I'm like, okay, well, if, if Ben, who is someone that like legitimately competes, thinks that this is an acceptable pace to run as like average, then that should be, that's how my brain works. That's my, so That's my tick box on the things. I'm probably doing that with other people. So it's like this weird trickle down of a thing. But yeah, I think but for you, me now, it's like I'm trying to remove the data points so it's more embodied and less, uh, maybe because it's been so many years that I kind of inherently feel it now and don't need to rely on those things. But it's um it's interesting how you can yeah observe other people and admire and, and like you're saying earlier those peak people that you like wow they've really become the master of their craft and now they're sharing it with people and that's kind of amazing thing within kind of movement and phys physicality and activity that we can learn from each other and then kind of mold something to suit your own lifestyle and, and your body and, and your current circumstance, which is always like pretty awesome. I think. Um, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm a slave to the data still, but I just, I think I love it. It's probably the slightly autistic personality in me yeah. that uh, just becomes obsessive about data. I'm a, the thing I'm the most enslaved to is VO2 max. And I, obviously I, I wear an Apple watch and I'm just constantly looking at it and usually perplexed by it going down yet feeling like it should be going up based yeah, on yeah. the training that I have. And then I'm like on Reddit forums, looking at what's going on and people are like, well, have you tried this? And, da, da, da. and then other people are like, you shouldn't be a slave to the VO2 max. It doesn't mean anything. Ultimately, if you feel good, then that's all that matters. It's like, you might know, but I want to focus on it. <laughs> but I'm like, but it's going down though. So, yes. <laughs> Um, it's, it's so weird. Like I actually, oddly enough, I find that my VO2 max goes up exponentially doing steady state cardio and I walk everywhere. Like my, mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the high intensity steady state in, you know, running at a relatively, um, standardized pace, it tends to yield pretty decent results, but just like walking, will make my VO2 max go up by a point or two over the period of a week, mm. um, which is quite remarkable. Whereas when I'm running, it might move by like a point of a point. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting that, eh? Like, I think it's that because you're out for longer when you're walking um, and there's more, more data to be like collected. The, the yeah. Fluid yeah. Of, like 
or your blood moving around your body and your brain is, is different to the way you run for like a shorter amount of time. It's quite interesting. But um, I, yeah, yeah, I'm a slave to that. I'm also a slave to just looking at, I, I don't really set PBs or, you know, I don't challenge myself in that respect because I'm not trying to approach running specifically as a competitive thing, even with myself. Like I, I've no interest in competing at all, whether it's like the local 5k or a marathon. I mm. do these things with myself. Like I'll go out and I'll run a marathon by myself mm. in the sense that I'm just doing that distance. But I often find myself doing that, having watched a like a Nick bear video or a Goggins video. And I just say, like, <laughs> my brain just goes, ah, and it's like, <laughs> I gotta go outside. I'm this is like, I've been awake for 30 minutes and I'm already wasting my life. Ah. So I'm just, just throwing my get shorts my on. Just, <laughs> get get yeah, I, I know the um, feeling of that kind of, that release, I guess. Um, and like Goggins lives rent free in my head. And I, I have a funny story about being in, I was in uh, Spain for, new year lot so not this new year just gone but the year prior and going into 22 and obviously we'd had like two years of hellish covid and mm. just the, you know the nightmare that came with that night gone and my partner was supposed to be with me but germany was still dealing with various rules and regulations so she ended up having to go home early and i went there and i rented a mountain bike and i was in the south of spain where there are fantastic mountains mm. and i was like riding up this mountain and it was not fun at all. And I started to slow down and like David Goggins just appeared from behind a rock and was just like, what are you doing? Why are you slowing down? He's like, obviously he wasn't there. This is just purely hypothetical, but he was just like, you're you're not trying to, my brain was like, there's no one here. So it doesn't matter. I could just pretend I went to the top of this hill and Mm. then, you know, take a picture, put it on Instagram. No one would know the difference. And this dude just appears like a sort of (laughs) bizarre mirage. Mirage, And it's just like, it doesn't matter about what the people think. It doesn't even matter whether you engage in this, uh, just get to the top of the hill. Like do, th- th- there is no reason you, you got halfway. So just keep going, yeah. just keep going. And so I was like, Oh, okay. And just keep pedaling knowing that actually by the time I get to the top, again, that feeling of elation is going to be profound and unlike anything else it's certainly going to be better than the feeling of defeat that i would have if i just sort of turned around with my tail between my legs and Mm. went home but i had nothing to prove to anyone so my brain of course then just thought what's the point and then i'm like having that battle of the fact that it's like well the the, was the point always to prove to someone that you did it or was it to prove to yourself that you could and and i got up to the top of that mountain and it had been a overcast day and then in some sort of bizarre miraculous turn of affairs the sun came out but it came out at that the way in which the the streaks of light burst through the clouds and it looks biblical it really was like this and i just thought this everything about this this was profound and this is why i did it and i cried i just sat there and i cried i was by myself i was out without my partner who should have been there and i just thought this was the point. This was the whole point of doing this. I've come yeah. here. I'm, I'm on my there's always a what if, right? And, and, sure. and that kind of plays on your mind. You're like, well, what if I did go to the top? Like maybe yeah. it would have just, maybe it was shitty and, and I hated it when I got to the top and it was cloudy weather, but who knows? 
Like, I still yeah, and, it, I, and, I, and I, the problem is, I'm too obsessive to be able to write off who knows. It's like I have to know, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I, because otherwise, I'm going to spend maybe the rest of my life obsessing mm. over the fact that I didn't get to the top, and I don't know what's there, and I need to know what's there. Yeah. And it took, it took in you know uh, the the ghost of david goggins to just appear and basically just bully me into <laughs> riding up this hill and yeah. uh and, you know and it took me i don't know two hours to get up there and it took me uh, i think it was 15 minutes to descend the entire yeah. thing which also was so much fun and it's like well cool you actually got to enjoy the fun of exactly. riding back down the hill which it's is the same as the um curtain right it's like you got halfway yeah. and then there's like a airplane curtain in front of you precisely you can't go there it's not for you yeah and now you've gone well i'm just gonna go yeah i mean it literally in this instance was like goggins burst through the curtain or she's like ripped it down put his (laughs) around his neck like a cape and was like come on we're going up this hill whether you like it or not and if you don't i'm gonna i'm just gonna drag you up this hill whether you like it or not so i was reading recently was like there's this kind of idea um it's like you've been given like an entry to like a race or something but it doesn't mean because you've got a free entry the race is going to be easy or it's going to guarantee a win you've just been given like the opportunity to try and i kind of like that sentiment where someone's like hey you know there's an option here there's a possibility there's an opportunity i'm uh, giving you permission to like do it but it's still the onus on you to put that amount of it, your own decision on like what effort and and energy or whatever it is that you're putting towards it to determine whatever outcome that may be. And yeah, you could pass that opportunity on to someone else because you might be like, it's not for me. Or you could say, well, only halfway was enough for me because I'm injured or because I'm feeling depleted or I'm going to go the whole way. And there's kind of no wrong or right answer, but it's like having that discernment of your own self to know i guess i think also it's in knowing that for me specifically is like i know i can get to the top of that mountain because i've done it several times Mm. whether that's a hypothetical mountain or Mm. whether it's a physical mountain that i'm climbing but this bizarre world that we live in in which everything that you do ultimately has to be done as sort of proof that you can do it and you try and use that as some weird digital currency which Mm. i hate i hate that i even participate and i certainly don't anymore but i did for a long period is you know the sort of subtle passive aggressive flex of look (laughs) at what i've done but you kind of brush it off as though it's not actually oh it's not that it's not that impressive or whatever it's like why are you posting it then yeah exactly if it's not for anyone but yourself then and so so the moment i stopped living for the basis of trying to uh you you know harvest uh, likes from random strangers is the time at which i started performing at my best because ultimately i realized none of that mattered and Mm. and really what mattered is being fully conscious of myself in that moment and it just made me it made me a better athlete it made me a better creative you know i stopped caring about the fact that specific things i was putting on the internet weren't garnering the same attention that things that featured notable faces did and i Mm. you know it used to irk me so much because i just thought well this just i mean you know it's the court of public it's the court Mm. of public opinion and you just think well the work 
the work just d- doesn't resonate and therefore it's not good. And it's complete bullshit. It's a mm. stupid way of thinking because oftentimes the work that resonated with me the most is the work that underperformed most spectacularly online. Mm. And, and, and I used to then think, I've, 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 I've misunderstood myself and I, mm, and I think mm. that I, I clearly don't have a, a thorough understanding of what's expected of me. And it's like, well, what's totally. expected of me is what I choose to do. And I'm not serving these random people that look yeah. at my work on the internet. I'm like, why are you creating in the first place? Are you creating for the sake of an applause from an invisible audience? Or mm. are you creating because it makes you feel good? And then the moment that I started creating because it makes me feel good, I start making things that actually matter. Mm. And you know, you like to write also, I follow your, follow your blog and have done since it started. And I admire the way in which you interpret all of those specific scenarios and turn them into great stories. And that too was a big part of it for me. It was like, Oh, what's missing from this? And it's like, well, the limitation of what I'm allowed to write on as a photo description on Instagram is already a problem. So let's mm, take this mm. into a long form and start actually building real depth around what it is that I'm trying to show here. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's what it is. And then fi- making films allows that even more so. And I, I really enjoy that process because again, it's, I think the intention and the attention span of humans is one in which now desperately needs visual stimuli, moving visual stimuli mm. to sort of retain attention and, mm. um, and then being able to tell that story through an individual, fascinating people that otherwise would just be ignored. Like I mentioned before, yeah. you can put them on video and it's like, whoa, this person was like naturally designed to be on camera, but would have otherwise just gone completely unknown had you not have put that camera in their face. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, that's yeah, a fascinating so thing. It's really fascinating. Yeah. And just like those, um, I guess, yeah, it's an, an experiment and, and, an exploration of, of ideas and finding the right kind of medium for them, which is kind of amazing. So mm. yeah, man, oh, dude, that's, um, I really like what you're saying just kind of about that, I guess just that process of making things and, and who it's for and why it's for and, and stuff like that. It's just, yeah, really kind of resonates with me. Um, and it's kind of like needing a constant reminder of that. So man, thank you. So, of course. so cool. Yeah. I mean, um, I've always admired your process and actually you were the first person to, you were doing what is currently being done to death way earlier than anybody else. You know, like doing almost dailies. You, I mean, I think we were doing weeklies or every other days in, on that tour, but mm. that was at that time, you know, that was a, an excessive amount of work, which oh. obviously now is an expectation, but yeah. You, you know, back then you, you were way ahead of your time in that regard. And it's crazy to think about that thing that long ago. And even the technology we had, I had some shitty MacBook and a, like an early SLR with video. And yeah, I mean, it we was, were like, it was well, maybe we can make tree. films for bands. <laughs> like, and it just didn't exist in, in the way it does now. And, you know, I mean, that's why I look at people like Tom Welsh and stuff who, you know, we're doing the same thing and had these like shitty rigs of camera gear and we're just like figuring something out that didn't really exist. 
Yeah, Tom Welsh. Tom Welsh is Tom Welsh is incredible, and I've been lucky enough to make work with him in the past. That he and I worked on a pilot for a show that I was pitching, and uh, you know, I've I've known him from day one. I know him because of his brother, who from while she sleeps, Matt, who came up to me at Sonosphere. I was playing and they were not. And he gave me his demo and I got given demos all the time, mainly because I was so close to Ollie that people were like, Oh, if, if, if I could just get Ollie to listen to my record, then maybe he'll sign me to drop dead and da da da. So you can imagine, like I got a bunch of demos every day and they were garbage. And then this kid came up to me in person and he hands me this CD and it looked handmade and it looked like he'd actually put some attention into it. And I just thought, I, I like this. I like this. I like the imagery. I, I like the sigil that they put on the front, which they still to this day use. And so I went home and I played it. I drove home from wherever I was, oh, at Sonosphere. And I put it on in my car and was like, this is not shit. This is, this is not shit to the point at which I feel inclined to take this to Ollie and tell him to listen to it. Mm. And I did. And he texted me immediately and was like, who the fuck are these guys? And I was like, oh, there's some kids from Sheffield that make really good music. He was like, oh, bring them through to the, uh, to the studio or whatever the office and give them some clothes. And I, on the day that that was happening, Daniel P. Carter from Radio One happened to be there as well. And I was like, yo, have you heard these guys? You should listen to their record. And I gave it to him also. And then one thing led to another and, and they formulated a relationship. I'm not saying that I'm responsible for the rise of While She Sleeps at all, but I'm certainly saying that when you find something that that you genuinely admire, then just like be the vocal mm. instrument that you can be for the sake of the betterment of that project. Mm. But Tom Welsh made their first music video and at that time the video that he made was jaw-dropping considering he made it on i don't know like a 6d or something with like a basic stabilization but it just looked mental at the time i was like how who the fuck made this video like where did they get budget to make a video that looks as good as this considering the types of videos that were being made by Mm. bands in that capacity when i just met up with him i'm like who the fuck are you? And like, where, like, where did you like learn how this? Did you make this? Yeah. And, and he, it, it, uh, he's, he's still to this day, he's the same person. He was just like, well, I just like spent a bunch of time reading and then <laughs> applied what I'd read to my practice. And it just sort of worked through, you know, process of elimination or whatever it might be. And I, I've deeply admired his work and look at mm. him now, you know, he's, he's absolutely crushing it. And along with Bailey, along with all of those cats, it's the same thing. You know, they, they all just looked at the fact that they had one thing they cared about and they just poured their life into it and paid attention to everything that was going on around them to use as leverage towards bettering their skill set. And, you know, Tom is fantastic and Matt is fantastic. The, The two of them are just such highly functioning individuals, but the beauty of that scene, the beauty of all of those people is that they just care about what everyone else is doing and want it to be as good as it can be and will help it to become that. And Mm. that's never left that group of friends. And they're Mm. all, you know, everybody is still at least acquainted with one another if they're not necessarily in constant connection with them. There's the passive connectivity of, 
the internet and I'm permanently inspired and, and in awe of what these people are still doing. And I don't have Facebook anymore, but in my messenger, I had a, I had a message from Matt Welsh saying, I don't know how many more of these shitty floor shows I can do. Like, I'm just so bored. I'm going to throw in the towel. And like, then they played Brixton Academy and then they played Alexandra Palace. And I just still think back to this message that I, and, and I remember my response being like, absolutely, by no means are you allowed to throw in the towel yet. Like there is something coming and you might not be able to see it, but I feel it. And please, for the love of God, do not throw in the towel because you, you will reap the benefits of your sustaining of this pursuit. I promise mm-hmm. you that. So seeing that now to this day, like, I just, I'm in total awe and I love, I love those boys and I don't get to see them ever really. But, you, you know, just watching what they've done is just beautiful. And, mm. and Tom and all those cats, you know, I have endless, boundless love for, for, for all of these people yeah. who we came up with because they're just doing great things and they deserve everything that, that has come from it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that's a good place for us to kind of like close out because, you know, just that admiration of, of our peers and people we've kind of mm. come up with because I think that's just the beauty of what these conversations are and why we do what we do. Absolutely. So, yeah, man. Um, yeah, any, I guess, yeah, any last words? I, I don't know if I've ever really said that on this, but yeah, maybe any last kind of thoughts and, and where you're kind of heading into the year, you know, both like process wise and, and movement wise. Um, yeah. Okay. Move, movement wise, I think I, uh, physically I'm, I'm, I'm looking to, to really evolve in my strength specifically i've hit that point i'm 35 as of a few weeks ago and i know it's at this point biologically that one's body genuinely starts to to regress and i Mm -hmm. i'm deeply aware of that and so it's just that this year will certainly be a year dedicated to maximizing strength um and consistency in maintaining that strength uh i'm talking really in 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 like a physical strength Mm. uh standpoint but then also process the the writing will naturally progress to the point at which i think it'll take center stage in what i'm outputting and once this book is finished and i pray that it can be something that i can utilize to a degree that it actually succeeds, then that I think will become the, the, the primary tool for, um, for connectivity with people. There, there are so many things that need to be written on uh, from, from my perspective, but I sort of have jotted a million notes down and then, <laughs> and then failed to, to bring any of them into fruition. So I have focused solely on this as being, this is, this is ground zero. We start here. And then from that, we can start outputting from there. But I have like three, three different shows that I've written uh, that that are all there. They're ready to go, but they're just sitting for the time at which I can leverage someone understanding that I am a writer as opposed to, are you, I thought you were a photographer. I thought you were this. I thought you were that. It's just like, okay, the writing's first, the rest of it can take a side 
step. Yeah, like, yeah. The photography, I love taking photos. I'm not a photographer, but like, I love that people love them too, but that's not what I do. And I don't want to be a photographer. Um, <laughs> whether or not I'm kidding myself in the fact that people are like, no, you can't write, man. Just don't, don't do that. Just <laughs> but, um, but that'll be it. I think the book, the book comes first and like just being, being a savage. <laughs> 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 <laughs>